0: Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. We're studying this wonderful epistle of Paul, probably the earliest of his letters to the churches that he wrote to. Most of the churches he wrote to he had occasion to visit and have part in their planting. This is true. The churches of Galatia, the Galatian area. Uh, Those churches started strong, but shortly after they began, Uh, The pure message of the gospel, faith in Christ alone for salvation, was corrupted as old school Jews came in called Judaizers and tried to add to the gospel of Christ Uh, works. The need to perform certain rites and rituals of the Jewish law, some of which were actually part of the law in the Old Testament, the civil and ceremonial portion, some that were added by tradition by that time. And so Paul writes very Uh, directly to correct this distortion because the distortion of the gospel means it's not good news at all when added our works to our salvation. We read in the middle portion of the first three chapters that no one can be justified by works of the law, only justified by faith in Christ in his keeping of the law and his payment on the cross for us. Further, we have to recognize that we are not at different levels as believers because You have been a believer for a long time doesn't make you more special to God than someone else. In fact, none of the usual social categories that we think of, whether it be race, class, or gender, apply as it relates to being right with God. Faith in Christ is what makes us right with God and then makes us together a community, one with each other, as we rejoin together with Christ. In fact, the last verse that we studied, or one of the last verses we studied last week, which kind of culminated the chapter uh, preceding chapter 4, chapter 3, says 4 in verse 26 of chapter 3, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. We are sons and daughters of God through faith. This is our chief identity, our primary identity. All the other usual categories we give to ourselves or we find ourselves placed in matter not compared to our primary identity. children, of God whatever you use to describe yourself when someone says what do you do that's your secondary or maybe tertiary identity it is not your primary identity your primary identity is child of God here now God's Word chapter 4 continuing the thought Paul writes starting in verse 1 I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child is no different from a slave so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Father, help us to live in light of our standing as your sons and daughters. Too many of us are living in slavish fear or some kind of gloomy oppression. Free us from living like orphans to live like children who have just reached legal age and have received the first of seemingly endless inheritances. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This week, many interesting events, but one that really cemented in my mind this issue of our primary identity happened when Brett Farr told everybody that he's coming out of retirement for the second time. Now, in defense of Brett Farr, he's not the first aging athlete to do this, to retire, unretire, retire, and unretire. Uh, but he plays a position that's unlike most other positions in sports. It's the, the most violently targeted position there is. And from the time he was a little kid, he's had people chasing him, trying to kill him. I mean, that's what you do when you're a quarterback, is run away from the big guys. He's been doing it since he was a kid, and doing it very well. In fact, one would wonder, at age 39, why he feels the need to keep proving anything. He's really done it all, when you look at his statistics. It's really, truly amazing. Seven division titles he's led his teams to. Four conference championships, two Super Bowl appearances, one in which he won. He's the all-time leader in many categories, throwing the most touchdowns, most yards, most completions out of any quarterback who's ever played. Most of this was accomplished with one team for 16 seasons. Three times he was named the whole league's MVP most valuable player. Absolute first ballot Hall of Famer, no question, no matter what happens last happened last year or this year. Yet despite uh, despite virtually no examples of Hall of Fame quarterbacks, doing well after the age of 37. He's going to unretire at age 39. We'll turn 40 in the middle of the season to give it one more go. Now, I turn 38 tomorrow. I feel rickety after the game I played on Friday with the the JV team. He's going to go another season, age 39 into 40, playing the most violently targeted position there is. What would make a person do this? I think possibly, that his primary identity is wrapped up in what he does on the sports field. Now, it'd be easy to jump on a guy like that. He is going to make $25 million over the next two years to do so. And I don't want to do that because it's not just Fred Farr that struggles with that, probably. Just guessing. Haven't sat down and talked to him. Michael Jordan, or Joe Montana before him, or any amount of people that have this issue. Professional athletes, though, let's face it, they're pressured sooner. They have much less time in a quote-unquote career to accomplish things. So they're pressed into a place where we look at it, and it's the average Joe, we're like, why does he have to do this? doesn't really need to prove anything. He can go off in the glorious sunset. But instead, he's coming back and might possibly bring embarrassment to himself. Why would he do this? Well, listen, we all struggle to some degree with similar identity issues. We have things that we wrap our identity into, so interwoven that when that thing is gone, it's only then do we realize that we've been trusting so much in it or finding our security in it. And we forget, as children of God, that that is our primary identity. That's what defines everything else, the fact that we're sons and daughters of the living God no matter what we do with our hours. In fact, what we do with our hours in the day should be always in light of our primary identity. But yet we struggle the same way Brett Farr possibly struggles, because for us, When our kids are up and out of the house and we're wondering what do we do, we struggle with our identity. When the smallest one is in school and now we have some hours that weren't there before, what have I been wrapped up in for so long? Or one of our children goes off to college. Something's different. Or we're getting close to retirement. Or maybe the company's going to retire me. What is my life like after that? What do I do? What's my identity? Maybe someone we've been married to for a long time dies. Who is my identity? What is my identity? You could think of all sorts of things that we are passionate about, and rightly so, God gives us wonderful callings, but they're secondary in their third and fourth level from this primary identity, which calls us sons and daughters of God. And it gives us worth and it gives us value it gives us significance because it's wrapped up in our being God's children through Christ so when those things are gone and they'll be gone at some level those other identities we still have a sense of security and belonging and worth and calling that's wrapped up in the primary thing God has made us his children in fact when we come to this passage. It's profound on many levels. It's speaking to people at all different stages of their life and their growth in Christ. And it's speaking in a general term to the people of God. That's the way we can relate with what is being said, especially in the opening verses. And what we see here is that the Christian life itself is a life of sons and daughters. That's the life it is. It's not a life of slaves whether it be slaves to a false identity or slaves to works or doing certain things. We're not slaves in any fashion now. We're children of God. That's what our life is like. Children. It's freedom. It's not bondage. But look at how the passage returns to a bit of redemption history to show us what God has been doing to bring us to this place. We don't live in that transition period that our brothers and sisters in the first century did, so he speaks to them in this corporate sense, but we can, can collectively imagine being in their spot when they hear these words. Let's look first at the, the opening three verses of chapter 4, where we see that before Christ, we the people of God corporately were slaves in actuality. Verse 1 says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Now, he's speaking to a people who previously were under the law, the Jewish system, the rites and rituals that one had to carry out as a Jewish person in this system. And so he's saying that you were, in fact, God's people. In fact, God's people are always treated as his children throughout in the whole Bible. All of the Bible speaks of his children this way. But they did not experience the fullness of the inheritance that would come when Christ came and finished the work on the cross. So in a sense, they were like young children, minor children, who knew they had an inheritance coming, but they could not fully experience it or feel it or live it out until a certain particular time, the father's choosing. Verse 2 says, But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So before Christ comes and does his work on the cross, and ascends into heaven and sends the spirit, we were, in a sense, like slaves. Positionally, yes, we were justified before God. Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Yes, redemption is applied to him in a way, looking forward to the death of Christ. But he was not able to live in the same fullness that we are able to live this side of the cross, the sending of the spirit. Despite being positionally justified, the people of God could not experience the sense of adoption that we are now given by the Spirit of God. Look at verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Now, consider this in your own life. And I don't have that many things that are of earthly value. But I do have a small collection of firearms that are important. And my boys know they'll get them at some point. But they're not touching them now. And as they grow older, they'll learn more about them. And someday they'll receive them. And they'll be able to use them in a right manner. But now, it's as good as not having them as far as they're concerned, practically speaking, because they can't touch them. But they are theirs. The people of God the Old Testament, looked forward to an inheritance that would come to them that they could not fully realize in their time. In that sense, they were like slaves. You could see it, but they couldn't really have it yet. And Paul reminds them of this. Now, before Christ we were slaves, here refers corporately to the fact that the fullness of the gospel message itself had not come until Christ had come and died on the cross. There is another sense in which every one of us, before we come to saving faith in Christ, were slaves to to sin. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians. But that's not what we're talking about here. Here it's this, this corporate immaturity that had before the fullness of the gospel comes and is realized. That's what's being spoken of here in the context of Galatians chapter 4. Slaves of what? Look at verse 3. The same way also when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Several different positions that are advanced regarding what Paul means by the elementary principles of the world. If we're enslaved to them, what are they? I think best we should consider the context and see the elementary principles of the world is that general system of Judaism that was well known and that was the way in which people came to know God. He was displayed through the revelation of the law given in the Old Testament and the Jewish people had advanced this and guarded this and had had promoted this and so, but it was elementary. It was never meant to be the fullness of the message. For instance, they did the ceremonial uh, provisions of the law where they would sacrifice animals. That was never meant to redeem somebody, but rather it was elementary and it was beginning level to show them the fulfillment that would come in Christ. And before Christ came, people were under the elementary principles of the world. Even people who weren't Jewish were under this moral law that God had given. And he had given ceremonies, he had given rites and rituals, and the only way a person could be made right with God would still be by faith, but then they would be part of the community, and then they would have to basically be Jewish to some degree. That's true before Christ. They came through the Jew- Jewish system to know who God was, his Redeemer was, and live out this life of rites and rituals that they all lived. Now Christ comes, fulfills this. Those things are elementary. Those things are immature. They're incomplete. Now... You're no longer slave to that because Christ has freed us from this. And we move on from those elementary principles. So those Jews who insisted the Gentiles conform to certain outward rituals, they were guilty of not graduating from or to what Christ had brought now in the freedom he brought. Indeed, they were slaves to the elementary principles. And they were advancing them and trying to keep people enslaved to them. Now that Christ had come and done his work, we move from remediation to completion and maturity as adopted sons and daughters. So before Christ, we were slaves. But now, verse 4 and verse 5 tells us that God acts in a planned, precise way to free us by Christ. Look at verse 4 and verse 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might... Receive adoption as sons. There are several profound realities revealed in these verses. Consider five of them. First, we see that the timing of God's enacting the plan of redemption is clear. When the fullness of time had come. In other words, God never reacts to man and then functions. He plans and he purposes and he's precise. And He, in the fullness of time, when just the right time occurs, He acts. And that's what He does. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. So His plan that we see revealed in the Scriptures right after the fall of man when He promises to send one to crush the head of the serpent, that's the plan of the Gospel, it's now come to its its time in that first century when it was time now for Christ to come. So we see the timing of God's plan. Very clearly displayed. his plan of redemption to save. But also we see the origin of Christ coming. Notice what it says. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. The origin. We see that God sends Jesus forth, His Son. He doesn't make Jesus His Son. He doesn't create Jesus. He sends His Son, who is and was His Son. Always. And he sends him. So this plan is from eternity. It's not dreamed up in time and space. It's from eternity. And it's realized in time and space as he sends forth his son. But also you can see the manner, how he chooses to do this. It says, send forth his son, born of a woman. He does so by sending his son, taking on humanity, born of a woman. So... The righteous man can redeem sinful men and women. In the form of man, God the Son comes, born of a woman. But look at the condition of His coming, when He came, what this means for Him. Born under the law. So, in the fullness of time coming, He sends forth His Son, born of a woman, and He's born under the law. So He is subject to all the rites and rituals and the things that were were known to the Jewish people. All of them. He's born under all of it. And unlike anyone else who had ever lived, he kept all of it. So born under the law, he could vividly be seen as perfect in all his obedience. And so born under the law, born of a woman, he is our representative now, the one who is without fault, without wrinkle, without blemish. He's the one who does it. Born under the law, keeping the law perfectly. God acts in his planned, precise way to free us by Christ. And notice what He does. The purpose for His sending the Son. Look at verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law. So He's born under the law, represents us perfectly, those who are also under the law but unable to keep it, and He then redeems us by giving Himself as a sacrifice. So, substitutionary. As our substitute, in our place, God gives His Son and He pays for our sins. He redeems us. He buys us back. That's the purpose of His sending. We spend a lot of time talking about this because it's important. Redemption. Atonement. Justification. What God has done for us in our place. Died for us on the cross. Spend tons of time. If you look in your hymnal, there's section, maybe a third of it, devoted to redemption. To the focus on God redeeming us from our sins. And praise God for this. But let us not lose that there is a second reason why He sent His Son Related to redemption, but please do not let it pass your view. Look at the second part of verse 5. So that we might receive adoption as sons. He did not just come to save you from your sins. He came to make you his child. To redeem and To adopt. Brothers and sisters, and I can say that with full meaning. Brothers and sisters. In Christ, we are no longer slaves. Which would be fine if we were redeemed, right? But we're no longer slaves. We're adopted children. Look at the text again in this light. Came to redeem those who were under the law, verse 5, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Please grasp this for a moment. God would send his own son so that we could stand before his holy tribunal and be declared as not guilty. That would be plenty. We would run out of that courtroom with great joy and praising of him because we did not get what we deserved. That would be wonderful to be redeemed and set free that way. But he doesn't stop there. He says, no, before you leave, guess what? Now you're my child. You come live with me now because I delight in you. I'm not just repulsed by what you did and look at Jesus and say, okay, you can go, thanks to Jesus. I say now you're joint heir together with Jesus, whom I love and you will receive the things that I will bestow upon Him. Not the least of which is resurrection from the dead, by the way. That's what it means to be adopted. Redemption is awesome. But adoption is even more awesome when you put them together. Redeemed and adopted. Sons and daughters now. Total different way to look at your life. That's primary identity. I've been redeemed so that I might receive adoption as a son, as a daughter. And this is not... Uh, some unique doctrine to just the book of Galatians. In fact, when he's writing to the Romans, Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Later, Romans 8, verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit... Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. He looks forward to the full effect of our adoption that starts now. Ephesians, verse, chapter one, the fifth verse. And by the way, you know, when Paul writes in Ephesians, especially the first two chapters, it's heavy with doctrine. It's heavy with theological precision and accuracy and understanding our position. And I would just say, I would just say that it is important to be accurate on these things. We spend a lot of time trying to be accurate because we think it's important that we think right because when we think right, we'll do right, right? That's what we think. And I think that's largely true. But there's something laden in this passage that we have to confess is deeper than just simply what we have in our cognitive minds, what we just have in our intellect, what we know to be true. It's something that says that the spirit of God will testify to our spirit, will make us sense our adoption. So it's beyond just simply getting it right in our head. It has to do with our spirit being made right by only the spirit of God. You can't make yourself feel adopted, but God can by his spirit and he does. That's why he sends the spirit of his son to impress upon us that we are adopted. And even in Ephesians, in chapter 1, when he's laying out all this heavy foundational doctrine, he says in the fifth verse of the book, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So his purpose is to redeem and to adopt, to make us sons and daughters. And he gives the spirit so we can sense it's true. By the way, that's a little uncomfortable for me, because I'd like to give you a more intellectual answer. I could like to tell you, if you recite this particular mantra over and over, I am a son, I am a son, you'll feel like a son. But you won't, unless the Spirit of God gives you a spirit of adoption. And I can't force it on you, I can only tell you that as the Word is preached, the Spirit supernaturally will give you a sense, you're not an orphan. And no matter what's going on in your life, what failure may be happening or what thing you just lived through, you know in your spirit, because the Spirit of God testifies to you, that though people may reject, you may reject yourself, but God says you're not an orphan, you're the child of God that I've made you through Jesus. That's the Spirit of God working. It's not the prowess of the preacher or the articulateness of my words. It's the Spirit of God testifying to your spirit that you are a son, you're a daughter. You're not an orphan. Adoption. Wonderful that Paul uses this term. It's not a Jewish term. The Jewish mind wouldn't even really conceive of it the way Paul uses it. It's particularly a Greek term honed by the Romans, and it's a legal term, but it's a legal relational term. It's, it's more than just simply a legal term. It's a compound word. Adoption comes from huia, son, the thesis, to place. To place as son. To put in the position of a son. To give to one the position. The placement of an heir. To take one who was not by nature of one's family and to legally receive and treat that person as a born child. Earlier, Pastor Nathan led us through the Confession of Faith. And I love it. The Westminster Confession, you know, that was penned by some serious dudes. If you don't believe me, go look at the coffee table and you'll see a picture of them writing it. It took them four years just to write this, okay? They're really serious guys. Just like we're really serious. But they penned adoption... The terms of the catechism question in such a way that I think really grasps the supernatural nature of how adoption is experienced, felt, if you will. Earlier, we read that adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received, received into the number, the communal aspect of being made one through Christ. And have the right, have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. This is what prompts John to say, behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. This is why I think it's interesting that Jesus, upon rising from the dead, is talking to the ladies who saw him first. And what does he tell them? Not that the risen king of the universe is now about to take his place on the throne and exert dominion all over uh, over everything, which he'll do. What he says is, go tell my brothers that I am alive. Interestingly, when Jesus tells us to address the father, Elohim, Adonai, Jehovah, the great God, the God above all gods, the ruler of all the universe, what does he say to call him when you pray? Our father who art in heaven, he came to redeem and to make us sons and daughters. And the issue has not to do with our feelings in this. It's living out what is actually true. That we are adopted sons and daughters, though we often struggle to act as such. Our adoption is not simply a cognitive acknowledgement of some doctrinal statement. It's not just relegated to the simply a legal understanding alone. It's not it, it, Adoption is something that is experienced because the work of God's Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are no longer orphans. It says in verse 6, because you are sons, that is, you are sons, God sends a spirit. Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You can imagine that little toddler who comes to their parent. They are in the parental-child relationship. Nothing can change that. But the child comes and has a dirty diaper, and he smells. Has maybe dirty. He has food on his mouth. He's got stuff coming out of his nose. He's not a sight to behold, but no parent ever does anything but grab that kid up and hug him. And that's what God does to us all the time. We're already his children. We don't smell that good. We don't look that great. But he picks us up and he loves us because he's our father. And guess what? He cleans us up. And he's doing it throughout your life. And you get dirty again. And he picks you up. He never ever turns you away and says, I can't stand you. He doesn't do it because he's your father now in Christ. Constantly, consistently testifying to us, even in our worst moments, that he is our father sonship is something we actually can feel I dare say because the spirit does it it's upheld by the ministry of the Holy Spirit it's a spirit-directed sense of belonging Tim Keller says something that I think is profound as it relates to this understanding of adoption he says the normal Christian life is like this most of the time we are living the Christian life by claiming the objective truth of our sonship that's what we do this is what's true we believe this that's good He goes on to say, you're saying, I'm not going to live like this. I'm a son. So we say it out loud almost. I'm going to believe that I'm fully accepted in the beloved. And we repeat what we know is true doctrinally. Keller says, and that's good. That's what you do. You claim that because that's what the scripture says. But he also says, but when the spirit is doing the work, you don't have to tell yourself this the same way because you know it. It's intuitive. Abba. Another writer said, Abba, Father, it is the voice of the Spirit of God on the lips of his people. And as sons and as daughters, we are also then heirs, as it says at the end of verse 6. Verse 7 what is Christ's inheritance becomes our inheritance, which gives us security because the father never rejects his son. It gives us provision because we know he always provides for his son's every need. It gives us delight because he delights in us because he delights in his son. That's a great security, especially against the backdrop of all the stuff we experience in this life. And ultimately, and most gloriously, we are joint heirs together with our elder brother, who's the first fruit of the resurrection. We're, United to Him, so that means that our life does not end here, although it may seem that way for a time. Ultimately, we are raised again to new and eternal life because Jesus was as well. and We experience resurrection, final resurrection, as heirs, joint heirs together with Christ. Very simply, I challenge you to think, how should we then live in light of this primary identity which we are speaking and reading of? You know, transitions in your life are probably very painful and difficult. None of us really are that comfortable with them, but they can be the very thing we need to reassess what is our primary identity. What do we get our most worth out of our most value or most significance out of? I alluded to sports figures. Let's think of some of the others I mentioned, because I know all of them fit categories that you find yourself placed in. How about A career you've had in business or some other profession and it's coming to a close. And you're thinking, how am I even going to order my day? For 50 years I've been doing something a certain way. What does it even look like? It's a wonderful time for you to assess what your primary identity is and what God might call you to next. Not it's over now, it's what now as a child of God? Hopefully you were doing what you did as a child of God. Now what next do you have for me, God, as your child? Maybe it's a mother, like I talked to several moms this week as school started up. More than one mom in our church mentioned the fact that as their children were going to school, they had always had at least one child at home. It's even true in our own home. As our youngest went to a full day of school, uh, suddenly Sherry was asking herself, well, what does my day look like? What do I now do in this particular place? It definitely causes a, a pause. To think think, what is my primary identity? I've been mom for so long and still am. But where does that fit what God's called me ultimately to? Transitions could be good challenges to us. Think also of, of the mom and the moms here and the fathers here who drove their children to college this last week. I remember mom hugging me goodbye my first day of college. And I remember thinking to myself as she cried, as she said goodbye to me, I'm not going that far. I'll be back in Thanksgiving. And guess what? You can expect some calls. You know, usually for some assistance. So in my mind, I wasn't going anywhere. But in her mind, there was a transfer going on that was big, huge to her. Big transfer. And it causes us to reconsider what I've been this for so long. What am I now? Think of someone when they lose a spouse, especially for a woman who has the name of her husband. And now what does life look like? What is my primary identity, that sister must ask, or that brother must ask, if he's in the same situation? How about moving? Some of you have moved from one location geographically to another, and you didn't think that it mattered that much where you live, but now when you're at a place where no one knows you, they don't know what you do, they don't know your family, what's caused you to be here, what's going on, and you find out that your identity is so wrapped up in all the various things that you do or that you're active in participating in, and now it's gone, and it's starting over, and it's like building something over again. Primary identity is so important that we live in light of that so that whatever else God calls us to do and they can all be good things. Nothing I've said so far is a bad thing. They're callings of God. But what does it look like must be answered in light of what his primary call is to you. What your primary identity is. And one of the greatest books that's ever been written, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, it's a profound book that you'd have to read multiple times to really let it sink in, he said something about the seventh chapter that his impacted me from the first time I've read it down to the fifth time I've read it. And listen to what he says. He says, Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. I find that amazing. When you consider how deep what Packer writes is, for him to stop and pause essentially and say, You can't understand Christianity if you don't understand adoption. That's profound. I want to listen when he says that. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption, Packer says. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and whole outlook on life, it means that he or she does not understand Christianity very well at all. I think he's exactly right. And my dear brothers and sisters, I ask you today, as we have read again one of the most wonderful portions of the New Testament, that you would consider today, as you sit around the lunch table, fellowshipping with your family, maybe some others, that you rejoice that you are a child of God and then you ask God, how might I live out whatever you've called me to do this week in